Welcome to the amazing world of radio from Boise, Idaho. This is your host. Get ready for unique, rare, and little-known treasures from the golden age of radio. You're listening to the amazing world of radio with Adam Graham. Today's episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters who have chosen that we're going to do a summer of summer replacement programs. And today we're going to bring you an episode of Wanted. This was NBC's competition against uh, Somebody Knows. And its goal was to educate the public about manhunts in process. And we're going to go ahead and take a listen to an episode of this. Today's episode originally aired August the 11th of 1950. And the title of the episode is... The Case of Kenneth Tugun Wagner. Wanted. Wanted for jailbreak. Presented in the public interest, the program that brings you for the first time on the air, a nationwide manhunt in action. The actual facts to date on a man wanted. From the record, hear the -the on-the-spot reports of the people involved. Real names are used. Nothing is withheld. No one is protected. Here are the dramatic eyewitness accounts of a man wanted. Wanted for jailbreak. And now, Wanted's on-the-spot investigator, Walter McGraw. Good evening. Every week at this time, I take you on a cross-country search for a criminal who is, at this very moment, at large. The actual people who know him, his victims, his friends, his relatives and law enforcement officials who are involved will talk directly to you. They will tell you their own stories in their own way, giving you the facts as they know them. Remember, these eyewitnesses are putting themselves on the spot to give you first-hand information about a man who is wanted. Tonight, we turn wanted spotlight to crime in the South. We're dealing with a case of Kenneth Wagner, a case in which there are many fabulous and unbelievable, contradictory and confusing factors. Wagner is a legend. He is also a convicted murderer accused of killing five men. Down Mississippi Way, the legend is that Kinney shoots a perfect circle around a man's heart and then puts the seventh bullet in the center of that circle. But this is just legend. To the people who know him well, Kinney Wagner is a hero and a martyr, a man unjustly hunted, a poet and a superman, a Jesse James of the Southern Hills. Tonight, we bring you as completely as we can both sides of this story. Listen, these are the facts. The date, early spring, 1920. The location, the tri-state area of North Carolina, Virginia, and Tennessee. The voices you hear next are the actual voices of the people who, through no fault of their own, are involved in the case of Kenneth Wagner, called Big Boy or Spacho. I'm Ollie Cunningham, Kenny Wagner's sister. Kenny was a very honest, truthful kind of boy. He learned to shoot on the farm at home. Most farm boys do learn to shoot early. I didn't get to know him too well because he ran away from home when he was 14 to join the circus at Gate City. An itinerant circus, a carny, and Big Boy Wagner started his career right then. 
Under the big top, he was a roustabout. He got the smell and feel of the sawdust. He took to the big ring, especially horses. He had learned about horses from his kinfolk and trained to be a bareback rider, a western hotshot mountain horseman. Trick stuff, good stuff, new stuff. Kenny didn't learn to shoot no gun in the circus like some folks say. He always knew how to shoot. Down here, there's times you got no fresh meat and only one bullet. That's the way we live. Kenneth Wagner, headed for stardom, decided to quit the circus and get another job. He moved to Loosedale, Mississippi. I'm Ed Wally from Loosedale. Kenny Wagner, he had a job in a sawmill, but he was more interested in making a saw buck. His real occupation was transporting moonshine. He was a runner. He'd take that there moonshine, carry it on horseback from Mobile County over in Mississippi and sell it. All the time the revenues were happy. They didn't catch him. Big Boy Wagner was fast on a horse, faster than the revenue men, and he knew the back country of the tri-state region. He also knew the hills of Mississippi, and he knew the people who lived back there. About this time, Kenny fell in love. He was planning to get married. She was a mighty popular girl. Next bow of hers, a deputy sheriff's brother, was mighty jealous of Kenny. And the story is, don't know how true it is, somebody planted a watch in his coat and said Kenny stole it. A stolen watch. A small, cheap wristwatch. Wagner was walking down the railroad tracks on the outskirts of Loosedale when he was stopped by the local law and searched. The watch was found, and Kenny Wagner was arrested and taken into custody. Wagner proclaimed his innocence, but the case of the stolen watch was never resolved. Big Boy Wagner, after one month and a day of awaiting judgment, became proficient in another trade. According to official files, he borrowed a hacksaw from a fellow prisoner who just happened to have one and sawed his way to freedom. Six weeks of freedom in his beloved hill country. Then... Wagner's hiding out in a cabin four miles out of McLean. If you want to get him, you got to be careful. He's got a load of ammunition on him. It was the night before Christmas, 1924. The night before Wagner was supposed to have been married. My name's T.M. Hempstead, and I'm past sheriff of George County, Mississippi. On December the 24th, 1924, at approximately 3.30 in the afternoon, Deputy Sheriff uh, Murdoch McIntosh came to me and asked me to accompany him and Sheriff Jonathan Turner to McLean, where they were going after uh, Kenny Wagner. I told Deputy McIntosh that I would accompany them. This is Larry Cooley, the night marshal of Leakesville. Jonathan Turner let him bunch of men over to uh, McLean to capture uh, Kenny Wagner, where he was camping out in a, an old house. They called him out, and Kenny started out without his gun. McIntosh shot him. And so Wagner stepped back and got his gun and said he killed him. Then run out over him and made him get away. Kenneth Wagner had walked out of that cabin with his arms raised, and Deputy Murdoch McIntosh had opened fire on the helpless Wagner. Helpless until the wounded Kinney returned to the cabin, got his gun, and shot back. Killing number one. Mississippi's wires sang out the story of the murder of McIntosh. It became known there was a reward of $1,000 on Kinney's head. $1,000 brought out the huntsman in men who never thought of hunting before. Sure, half the county was hoping to collect that reward money. The hunters didn't have to wait long for information. 
There are two stories about what happened next. One is that a woman reported that a group of young people were misbehaving on the banks of the Holston River and that five men with ten guns went down to investigate. The other story is that someone tipped off the law who saw opportunity. Opportunity for ambush. At any rate, five heavily armed men from the sheriff's office started for Lynn's Ford. But Wagner had friends. This is Jerry Nelson of uh, Nelson Town, Kingsport, Tennessee. I was out riding one day down the river and uh, just uh, happened to see some boys and girls sitting up on the riverbank, and I saw the law coming, which I thought it was my duty to warn them to get away. And uh, so I told them they'd better skedaddle, and uh, so they did get up, or uh, started up through the field. Pretty soon the law was pretty close, so I, I had to make uh, some little excuse for myself. So I just waited till the law got up, even with me, and then I asked them, could I ford the river? And they said I could, so I rode on out into the water about uh, 50 or 60 feet, and I heard some shooting. So I heard uh, a bullet zizz. I, 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 I felt sure if uh, I should get shot, even if I wouldn't be killed, I, I'd drown if I'd get shot and wounded and fall in the water. So I turned the horse and rode back out again and rode a little ways up the road, and I heard a girl holler and say, oh, Lord, have mercy, somebody's killed because I saw him fall. So they started on towards me, and I started riding on back up the road. I saw Kenny coming across the field towards the the road where I was at. So we all met, even the girls and myself and the other boy and Wagner all met. And uh, Wagner walked up to me and I was still on the horse and put his gun in my ribs and said, uh, get off that horse. So I got off the horse and he asked me to tighten the girt and I told him to tighten it itself, which he did tighten it and got on the horse. Well, uh, he told the girl, said, uh, don't worry about me. He said, uh, this law won't get me. And then he turned to me and said, uh, uh, you can follow me and get your horse, and, uh, or I'll send him back. And and, and away he rode. I just soon not follow him. <laughs> Killings number two and three. Kinney got away, but Sheriff Webb and Policeman Smith were killed, the victims of his deadly aim. Now the tri-state area organized a posse to hunt the three-time killer. One hundred men on horseback, armed and angry, went out. I am J.D. Newland, President Sheriff of Sullivan County. After Kenny Wagner escaped this ambush at Kingsport, uh, a posse of a hundred men or more was sent out in search for him. They searched all night, and by the time daylight arrived, he'd been out so far in front that the officers lost all track of him. The posse lost Wagner, but they found his horse near Cloud Ford. As for Wagner... Kinney had swum across the Holston River to safety despite a bullet wound. Then... My name is Mary Bell Rose, Waycross, Virginia. We heard someone knocking on the window, and then he called and uh, wanted to in. And uh, my mother, who was in an upper bedroom, came out on the front porch, so he talked to her. He told her all about what he had done. Said he had shot two men and maybe three, and that one run and said, I wouldn't shoot a man in the back. And he asked her to let him in, and he asked if her husband was home, and she told him, no, there isn't a man person on the place, not a one, just myself and the children. And so he says, oh, I see then why you won't let me in. He said he had never done a woman harm in his life, never had. Finally, he, he left and went to our barn. And so the next morning, she went to the barn and walked up on the hay, and uh, then as she started to walk down off of the hay, she said he crawled out of, from under the hay and talked to her. 
and she told him that, that he ought to give up, that he might be in danger. Then he wrote a note to his sister telling her that he was giving up and that uh, it would be all right that uh, she could uh, go on with her school. So she came back to the house and fixed his breakfast and took it back to him and talked to him a while. And she came back to the house again and directly Kenny came out of the barn and gave up to uh, Mr. Poe, who was uh, a merchant in the store building near our home. I'm D.R. Poe, operator of the store at Waycross. I heard someone at the back of the store hollering. I recognized him as Kenny Wagner from the description I'd had of him. The rest of the men didn't want to have anything to do with it, so I told him I hadn't uh, done anything to him, and I didn't think he'd harm me, so I went out and asked him what he wanted, said he wanted to give up. And he wanted me to collect a $1,000 reward. He wanted me to know if I'd agree to collect that and give uh, his sister half of it to finish her education. So I made a note to that effect. Then Mr. Bussell come along, and uh, we decided that rather than take him in my car myself, we'd put him in uh, between us in a Ford Roadster. So uh, we just loaded him up in the Roadster and started down to Gate City. Wagner, convinced now that he had done the right thing, was docile and sat between his self-appointed captors, C.R. Poe and Neil Bussell. At sunbreak, this strange trio drove along the thin, gutted dirt roads for the sheriff's office in Gate City, Virginia. Meanwhile, the law was still looking for him. My name is Reuben Poe, deputy sheriff of Sullivan County. We spotted Kenny Wagner, which we were hunting for. I was going west, and he was coming east. And two other fellows were with him, Mr. Bussell and Poe. Recognized, and I said to the man sitting by me, I come Wagner, look out. And I tried to hit his left front wheel, but I missed it and hit the running board right beside of it, and I turned his car over. Well, Wagner, after I wrecked him, just raised his hand so high. He took 38 special off of it. Kenny acted just as nice as he could be with us. He never caused us a bit of trouble. Never even handcuffed him. We brought him back to Kingsport Jail. Now Mississippi was faced with the prospect of paying that $1,000 reward. Suddenly, she found herself unable to pay off. Besides, Mississippi wanted Wagner for the murder of McIntosh. And since Tennessee had him already, she sought. Tennessee, on the other hand, was in a hurry. The case was rushed to court, and in less than 10 days, Wagner went to trial in Bluntsville for the murder of Policeman Smith. Failing was high in town, I can tell you, on both sides. There was talk of lynching Wagner, but then lots of other folks sympathized with Kenny. They chipped in their dimes and nickels and quarters to help them buy legal counsel. Six lawyers rejected the money and volunteered their services for Wagner. As for the prosecution... I am T.R. Bandy, at present uh, county judge of Sullivan County, Tennessee. I was city attorney and assisted in the prosecution of Kenny Wagner for the murder of John Smith. And uh, as a result of the trial, which lasted several days, the jury found Wagner guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced him to death in the electric chair. A motion was made by his uh, attorneys to set aside the verdict and grant him a new trial on the ground that the court had committed error in his charge to the jury. After due consideration, the trial judge granted the motion and uh, allowed uh, the defendant a new trial. 
Big Boy was placed in the county jail while his attorneys went to work collecting evidence for his new trial. But once again, Wagner's reluctance to remain behind prison bars made itself known. Kenneth Wagner and Bert Davenport and four other prisoners broke out of jail at 6 p.m. this evening. They are wanted by this department for jailbreak. Wagner was loose again. This time he headed for Mexico. And taking no chance on immigration authorities at the border, Big Boy Wagner dove into the Rio Grande and swam across the river to the state of Chihuahua. Wagner hoped to settle down in Juarez. But a strange situation between Mexico and the United States turned Mexican attention on Kinney. They thought he was a spy. In danger of his life, Kinney forswore the pleasures of bullfights and banditos and headed back across the Rio Grande to settle in the little town of Texarkana. Wagner worked in a sawmill there. At first, he got along just fine. Then he got himself into trouble. And according to our reconstruction from the many legends... That was over a girl. Nice girl. Nice girl in dance hall. Seems that Kenny said something that her brothers didn't like. Well, the brothers didn't know about Kenny's reputation. They had a fight with him in the dance hall. Then they followed him out and ambushed him. There's a law that says you got no right to kill. But there's no law that says you got to stand still and be killed. Killings number four and five. Two more murders laid to Kenny. Now, Wagner, of his own free will, walked into the sheriff's office in Texarkana and gave himself up. He gave himself up to a woman sheriff named Lil Barker. Now, Walter McGraw. Much of the Texarkana story is lost in legend and dimmed by time. But one fact is clear. No charges were preferred against Kinney for the killing of the Carper brothers. Instead, Sheriff Lil Barker turned him over to Mississippi, who wanted him for the murder of Deputy Sheriff Mert McIntosh. Again, Wagner went on trial for murder. Disgusted with the way his trial was handled in Tennessee, he handed his own defense in Mississippi. And once again, he pleaded self-defense. The jury brought in a verdict of guilty, and Wagner's sentence was fixed at life imprisonment at the Mississippi State Prison at Parchman. <laughs> With Wagner in jail in Mississippi, Tennessee entered a retaining order at the penitentiary. This order demanded that should Wagner be paroled, he must be returned to Tennessee to face a retrial. And if found guilty a second time, he was to face the electric chair. Wagner wasn't happy with the order of retention. He wasn't particularly anxious for parole. He only wanted a happy life in the penitentiary. He became a trustee guard. Parchman presented him with two police dogs, which he trained for prison duty. My name's Tommy Martin. I worked for the Mississippi Highway Safety Patrol. Uh, I first met Kenny at Parchman, where he was instrumental in bringing three or four prisoners back to who had escaped from Parchman. Uh, he aided us and with the dogs. He was mighty good, and he also was a good shot with a rifle. One particular time, I picked him up and uh, proceeded to Brookhaven with him and the dogs, where... Safe crackage shot two city policemen. We uh, got to Brookhaven. We was unable to pick up too much trail with the dogs, but we tried. We st we stayed there for three days, and uh, on the way back home, uh, we uh, stopped side the road to let the dogs get out and walk around for exercise. And he was showing me how he could shoot by taking the rifle to his hip and shooting fence posts with it. And I also had an extra box of cottages in the car, and he asked me, 
could he have them? And I gave them to him because it wasn't any use of keeping them from having them because he told it to Thompson Sub at Parchman as a guard. For six years, Wagner's record was so good, there was talk of parole. But the dog trainer of Parchman didn't like his too-good record. I'm Al Holman, radio newsman for WALA in Mobile. Here's an item that came over our state wire on the night of October 27, 1940, and was broadcast over our facilities to audiences in the Deep South. Dateline, Parchman, Mississippi. Kenny Wagner, at one time known as the South's number one public enemy, has just escaped from Mississippi State Reformatory at Parchman. Wagner was being used to track down an escaped prisoner in his capacity as keeper of the bloodhounds when he escaped. He turned the gun, which he was using in the hunt, on prison guard Ben Fowler and forced Fowler to drive him to a nearby town. Wagner not only stole his clothes, but also his gun. It is reported that by the time the guard returned to Parchman to bring news of the escape to prison authorities, the trail was too cold for even Kenny Wagner's dogs to do much good. Kenny Wagner was loose again. Now four more charges were added to his record. The state wanted him for jailbreak. The federal government for kidnapping, unlawful flight, and for failure to register for the draft. The FBI joined in the manhunt, and results were fast in coming. This is Howard I. Bobbitt, formerly special agent in charge of the Federal Bureau of Investigation at Richmond, Virginia. The officers of the Virginia State Police and agents of the FBI received information to the effect that Kenneth Wagner was to be at a residence a short distance from Gate City. Surveillance maintained upon the residence showed Wagner getting into a car with another individual driving and proceeding to Gate City. The Virginia State Police and the agents followed Wagner into Gate City and through Gate City for a distance of about seven miles. They arrived at a place in the road where it would be possible to apprehend Wagner without him escaping. The siren was blown upon the police car, and the driver of the car pulled over. Wagner was commanded to get out of the car. Wagner got out, raised his hand, stood for an instant, and then dove back into the car to obtain a sawed-off shotgun. Shots were fired at him by the officers. He straightened up and dove into a shallow ditch alongside the car. He was given the command to come out of the ditch within 30 seconds. He complied with the officer's orders, and walking back into the headlights upon the officer's orders, he was commanded to take off his jacket. He did this. He was carrying two thirty-eights on a gun belt. He was commanded to drop these guns. He did that. He also took off his shirt upon orders of the officers, and in further compliance, to show that he had no further guns upon him, took off his trousers and dropped them to the road about 1 a.m. in the moonlight. Wagner was taken before a United States commissioner. He waived preliminary hearing, saying he didn't want to deal with small shots. He wanted to tell his story only to big shots. And he did. All three federal indictments were dismissed. And Wagner was returned to the state penitentiary at Parchman, Mississippi. All possibility of parole was dismissed now, and Kenny was happy. Once again, Kenny Wagner proved himself and became Parchman's model, part prisoner, part guard. He was such an excellent prisoner that he was rewarded. Kenneth Wagner, along with a group of other deserving convicts, was given a 10-day Christmas furlough home to see his kin and celebrate the holidays. And like a model prisoner, he returned to Parchman when his furlough was over. But not for long. 
Once again, the hillbilly Superman saw in the not-too-distant future another chance of parole. Once again, he was mindful of Tennessee's electric chair. I'm Officer Tommy Martin with the Mississippi Highway Safe Patrol. On March the 15th, 1948, I was on patrol duty around Loosedale, where I received an item over my car radio that Kenny Wagner had walked off in the state farm with a Thompson submachine gun and a 22 pistol, which he was carried as a trusty guard up there, and he had forced some people to carry him from Parchman to Greenwood, Mississippi. We was ordered to be on the alert. They watched, but from March 15, 1948, until the present time, Big Boy Wagner, the tri-state problem boy, has remained at large. It is not our function here to determine the guilt or innocence of a man, nor do we intend to. But according to the facts you've heard tonight, and or other pertinent material, Kenneth Wagner is wanted. Here again is Walter McGraw. In this case, you must be informed of all the facts. What does Wagner look like? How does he dress? What are his habits? These we will give you, so stand by. How can you recognize him? Listen, and listen carefully. The following is a description of William Kenneth Wagner. Age 47, height 6 feet 2 inches, weight 235 pounds, Eyes brown, hair dark brown, graying, bald on top. Marks of identification, cut scar under chin, another on the upper front part of the right ear, bullet scar on left hip and thigh, irregular cut scar on ball of each thumb. And now back to Walter McGraw in New York. There is one more voice to add to the sum total you've heard tonight. Man who knows Key Wagner better than anyone else. I'm Kelsey Wagner, brother of Kenny. I'm making this statement on behalf of Kenny as to why he wants to give himself up to be a free man, and he says that some of our greatest apostles were former sinners. And if there's no forgiveness, what's the use to repent? Kenny feels that he has paid his debt to society with 21 years of his life. His main ambition in the rest of his life is to help youngsters that might get on the wrong track or maybe take to using guns and why he wants to give himself up. He wants to be a free man. He wants to make amends for the wrongs he's done. And to make these amends, he'd have to have a guarantee of a, a charges dropped in Tennessee and a pardon from Mississippi, which has been offered years ago, an assurance that he can give himself up without a possibility of gunplay or getting shot in the back. And being his brother, I know him like no one else does. Tonight you've heard many confusing, contradictory reports on Kinney Wagner. The question of whether or not Kenneth Wagner has been unjustly sentenced is not our problem. Wagner is a fugitive. But the fact remains that Mississippi has offered to parole him several times. In Tennessee, I've talked to many law enforcement officials, and many of these men gave me the impression of a closed-eye policy on Wagner. For instance, I talked to Judge Bandy of Kingsport, Tennessee, and he said, Mr. McGraw, you have asked me why Tennessee is not interested in prosecuting Kenny Wagner on these charges. The reason is that the eyewitnesses and all material witnesses to the tragedy uh, are now dead. 
If we undertook to try him, we wouldn't have any evidence that would uh, justify the case being submitted to the jury. Consequently, it would be wasted time and effort under existing conditions. So here is the situation. We have a wanted man who isn't wanted. This doesn't make sense. If Wagner is wanted, let's have the police go after him, which they are not doing. But if he is not wanted, let's clean this up legally. Free Wagner or bring him back to jail. And if Wagner will help himself and surrender, I'm sure justice will be done and this incredible situation will be cleaned up. Now, this is Walter McGraw saying there's no time like now to wipe out crime. Be with us next week when you will hear the actual people involved give their eyewitness account of the cop killer of the West, who is wanted. Wanted for armed robbery. All material heard on tonight's program was factual, from the record. Real names were used, no one was protected. Tonight's report was written by P.L. Mayer. Music by Morris Mamorski. The narrator was Fred Collins. Wanted was supervised for NBC by James Kovac and was produced and directed by Walter McGraw. Hear Bill Stern Sports Newsreel next on NBC. Welcome back. Well, I have to admit, this wasn't quite what I expected when I started listening to the program. And that we get such a nuanced look at the wanted man. And really, it's an incredible story for a lot of reasons. I think, you know, there's a point of view where you can make an argument that he was the victim of some corrupt uh, police actions down south and acted in self-defense each time. And that he was guilty of acting out of fear and making his own situation worse. The one sheriff who died, one thing I I found researching this, uh, actually had his funeral run by the Ku Klux Klan. While Klan membership was certainly not uncommon in the South at that time, that does suggest a general view of humanity and policing that may have led to him taking the actions that he did. On the other hand, that's a lot of deaths for them all to be justifiable, and certainly the debate rages on. Incredible amount of work uh, written about uh, this case. I think I, I found at least five books published since the turn of the century on uh, Mr. Wagner. If you do want to go down this uh, rabbit hole, we'll want to use Kenny K-I-N-N-Y Wagner when doing your search. And you also have to be aware that there's a lot of telephone going on. I, I tend to have more faith in the believability of facts as laid out in this episode than some of the stuff that I read online. Like, Wikipedia's got something about the sheriff who... 
uh, captured him uh, secretly being in love with him. Even though there's no real evidence, I, I couldn't find any source from that. You know, in Wikipedia it said citation needed, and I'm like, yeah, I would should say so. But there's a lot of myth that, you know, and uh, debate that's grown up around him, uh, a lot of poems and songs written about him. And I should say that not every uh, song written from his uh, era was necessarily a flattering or supportive one. One ballad had it that the sheriff who caught him in Texarkana uh, got the drop on him. And the song says, uh, you know, from his voice, I've had my worldly pleasures, I've faced many a man, but it was down in Texarkana where a woman called my hand. Young men, young men, take warning. Oh, take my last advice. If you start the game in life wrong, you must surely pay the price. And then there was a songwriter in 1926 by the name of Vernon Dowler. Uh, Dalhart, who recorded three different songs about Kenny Wagner in 1926. Cashing in a bit much, uh, but again, his uh, concluding verses were not uh, uh, flattering. Uh, for Kenny Wagner broke the law and he threw his life away, and right behind the prison bars he'll sit till judgment day. So folks, take fair warning and heed this kind advice. Don't ever break the laws of God. You'll always have to pay. And other bits of misinformation, uh, there were people who said that he was afraid of extradition to Texas rather than Tennessee, and others who wondered why Mississippi didn't execute him when he wasn't sentenced to death in Mississippi. Uh, the overall story of this episode really, you know, there was just some really surprising things in here. The idea that you had armed trustees in prison was maybe one of the most shocking things I, I'd heard. Trustee guards that you give weapons to and let them, you know, just kind of uh, take some uh, practice by the side of the road. I mean, that is not a part of history that I was, you know, aware of at all. And it's just so surprising that it, it went that way. And it was also shocking that they went ahead and they gave him a gun and made him a trustee again. You know, I, I could see making him a trustee again, you know, but maybe something not quite so trusted as you get to handle and carry a gun and uh, train the prison dogs. One thing I did think was hilarious about the time that he did get captured by the feds is that they charged him with not registering for the draft. And the idea that we have that expectation of people who are in prison for life is kind of amazing. And, you know, the fact that, you know, you didn't get around to him if it was really that important. I mean, for years he wasn't going anywhere. I kind of think it was on you as the federal government. 
the one thing I found out about the second escape that they didn't mention is that he actually uh, figured that they would use the dogs to track him and that he trained the dogs not to follow him by whipping them, which is not an approved dog training method these days in most places. He was eventually captured in 1956. He was in Mississippi operating under the name Big Jim. He was interested in a woman, and somebody who was his romantic rival went ahead and turned him in. And he was actually happy to be going back to the same Mississippi prison where he died two years later. According to the newspaper reports, he died after going out to pet some dogs. He asked permission to leave the prison hospital where he was being treated for heart condition to go and visit the dogs. And then he passed away. So this was just a very fascinating story. And I can see why it continues to be so. Beyond that, I really enjoyed the production. I think from a standpoint of historical interest, the interviews with real people are fascinating because we get to hear how people talk back then. I don't think the radio dramas often represent it particularly well, what their voices sounded like. You do have an overuse of uh, mid-Atlantic accents, you know, in radio uh, of this era, and then some accents that are just kind of stereotypically done. So here you get to hear how they actually sounded and the way they use words and phrases. Of course, there's a, you know, they're not necessarily as good at speaking into the microphone in all cases. There was, a, I think, one or two that I did struggle hearing with. Of course, the radio actors are very uh, comfortable and used to speaking into the microphone to communicate, while others, particularly with quieter voices, kind of uh, can't could struggle a little bit. But still, I, I really do like uh, hearing the, uh, the ordinary voices of the time. So uh, this was a really interesting episode. I hope you enjoyed it. It led me down a couple of interesting rabbit holes, which is always fun. Well, next week, we're turning to something uh, quite a bit less serious uh, and a lot more tuneful. We'll be listening to The Francis Langford Show, Maxwell House Coffee Time. In the meantime, do send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and become one of our friends on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Radio Detectives from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham, signing off. <laughs>